I know it's the evening service and in the evenings we've been going through the minor prophets. But I didn't finish sermon last Sunday morning on servants and masters. Next week's the anniversary service, so something totally different. So I wanted to finish it off. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6 tonight. And just verse 9, just one verse. Verse 9 of Ephesians chapter 6. It says, And ye masters do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you tonight for this your word, and Lord, let's get this one verse. We do pray that, Lord, we might glean from it some things that would be practical, beneficial, that would be an encouragement to us. Father, we might leave tonight rejoicing, seeing you in your word and learnt from you. Well, as always, I'm aware of the fact that I need you to take me and use me. I need you to help me, clarity of thought, and give me the speech that only you can give. I pray tonight that you use your glory, and we pray that, Lord, that you just be honoured in this place, this as we come together around your word. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week that there were somewhere in the region of six million slaves in the Roman Empire in the first century. And that it was estimated that slaves made up around half of the population of the Roman Empire. We need to remember that at the time of the writing of Ephesians, slavery was very much a part of the way of life for those living in Ephesus. There were slaves, there were masters, but all of them had some contact somehow, some way, with slavery. And so as Paul brings his book to a close, this book of Ephesians to a close, it is appropriate that in this section about relationships, which is what he's been talking about in chapter 5 and chapter 6, in this section on relationships, it is appropriate that Paul would deal with the matter of Christian servants and Christian masters. And last week we looked at the instructions in God's word regarding servants and we said that the servants there are these bond slaves are either bond slaves by uh, in slavery or they were free they either were enslaved or they were free so this was talking about both slaves and indeed we could apply to employees today now we come to masters and likewise we can talk about masters here in the first century context of being slave owners or just being the bosses of those that they employed to serve them. And so this can be equally applied to bosses today. We want to note tonight the responsibilities of a Christian master, a Christian employer to his workers. And I want you to note with me four responsibilities for masters. First of all, masters must seek workers' welfare. Verse 9, the very first phrase, and you masters do the same things unto them. Do the same things under them. He's connecting this back to the previous verses with regard to servants. Whatever the responsibilities for servants were to masters, there was an equal responsibility of masters back to the servants. Now, we must remember that Christian faith does not bring about harmony by erasing social and cultural distinctions. This is not some form, Christianity is not some form of communism, okay, that where you get rid of all social structures and all social. Uh, realms, and there is no such thing as a hierarchy. Uh, Christianity was not about doing that. 
And so even in the society in which they lived, in the society in which we live, there are bosses and employees. There's employers and employees. As there was in the first century, there was those who were the masters and those who were the servants. There was the masters and those who were the slaves. And Christianity did not bring a, an end to this social and cultural tradition. Servants are still servants when they trust Christ, and masters are still masters when they trust Christ. What's going on is the Christian faith brings a harmony within those relationships by working in the heart with the master and the servant. As the servant gets saved, and as the master gets saved, then there is harmony that comes in the relationship. There's a new relationship that, that kind of goes over the top of the master-servant relationship. There's now this relationship of born-again believers together. And you and I know how that works. When you and I meet someone who's saved for the very first time, you and I aren't in their presence very long before we feel like we're old friends, as though we've known each other for a long while. They're part of the family. There's something about believers getting together. And so when Christianity came to the ancient world, came to the first century, and came upon the Roman Empire, what started to happen was there started a change in relationships. There wasn't change in social and cultural structure, but relationships between masters and servants to change as God worked in the heart of both the servants and the masters. If you like, Christ gives a new motivation for serving, gives a new motivation for employing, gives a new motivation for all that we do, a new organization to the way that we live. Both servant and master are serving the Lord. And ought to be seeking to please Him. And as servant and master are serving the Lord, seeking to please the Lord, then what happens is God works in that relationship, and now the master-servant relationship becomes something unique, particularly in the Roman world, as they work together for the glory of God. Christianity is a two-way street. Just as we've seen throughout this section of Paul's letter with regard to relationships, you know, there is a two street. Paul spoke of wives, then of husbands. He spoke of children, then of parents. He spoke of slaves, now of masters. This is a two-way street, okay? It starts out by, in verse uh, 21 of chapter 5, it says, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. There's mutual submission, between husbands and wives, parents and children, servants and masters. So it all goes together. And if an employer expects the workers to do their best for him, he must do his best for them. As he says there in verse 9, and you masters do the same things unto them. As has been required of servants with regards to you as a master, your servants are to... Uh, uh, Serve not with eye servants as men pleases, but as servants of Christ. They're to do it with fear and trembling, with singleness of heart, as unto Christ. They're to do everything they do as unto Christ, that he is their master. They're serving him as their master. So as they are serving Christ as their master, so too you are to do the same thing to them. You are have the same relationship with them as your servants. The master serve from his heart. If he expects his servants to do the same. So the master was to go to uh, about his business as master, now with a new relationship with him and his God. Realizing that his servants who knew the Lord, that they were his brothers and sisters in Christ. And now there was a new relationship within that social structure. Masters were related to slaves as if they too were related to Christ. 
Just as their slaves were to serve them as if they were serving Christ, the masters too were to treat the slaves in, uh, uh, as if they were serving Christ. Do the same thing. So he must not exploit them. You know, more specifically, since masters were in authority, they were to treat servants the way Christ treated them. In other words, they were to how Christ treated them as believers and they would treat their servants in the same way. They were Christ-like attitude towards those that they employed. That's illustrating Christ himself, who became a servant in dying on the cross. Though he was and is the Lord of the universe, though King of kings and Lord of lords, he gave up everything, he gave up his very life in order to be a service to you and I, that we might get saved. The master became the servant. The master died for his servants, you and I. And as that relationship, as Christ gave himself for you and I, that Christ the master, the Lord of the universe, gave himself for you and I, that you and I might be saved, the master would treat his servants in the same way. He was to do everything he could in his power to make their lives something that made them want to serve him, wanted to live uh, as a good employee. One of the best examples of verse 9, this do same thing in the Bible, is found in the book of Ruth and the man by the name of Boaz. He, was gre he greeted his workers in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 4. He greeted his workers this way. He said, The Lord be with thee. And his workers replied, The Lord bless thee. Boaz was sensitive to the needs of his workers, so much so that he was generous to a stranger by the name of Ruth. Remember, when Ruth came, and he didn't know Ruth, but he told the, the, the servants to leave the cornfield as God had commanded that she could go and glean there of the, that crop that she could live and survive and home, take care of her mother-in-law. Now we know ultimately Boaz marries Ruth, but in those initial stages, we find Boaz acting very different than many of the people in their own society. Boaz was a very godly man who followed God's regard to masters and servants were concerned. And he indeed uh, ensured that there was sufficient for people like Ruth to partake of the corners of the fields. His relationship with his workers was one of mutual respect and a desire to glorify the Lord. You know, it really is unfortunate when an employee says, my boss is supposed to be a Christian, but you wouldn't know it. In fact, you know, it's unfortunate when people say of you and I, they're supposed to be a Christian, but you wouldn't know it. You know, now I'm not sure that, you know, uh, uh, you, I mean, many of us are probably thinking, well, I'm not a master, I'm not the boss. You know, so this doesn't apply to me. Well, it applies to all of us. The principle's the same, isn't it? The principle in life's the same. You and I ought to go about living in such a way that we're honoring our master and that you and I are serving the master and then we want to serve those around. We want to be, whether it be a, another employee, we want to be a benefit and help to them or whether it be our master or whether it be whatever it is. You and I, people ought to say he, he's supposed to be a Christian and indeed he is. See, we're not just supposed to be supposed to be a Christian, we're Christian. And so in our daily relationships, people ought to see Christ in us the hope of glory. Whether or not we're a boss or not, the, the, the reality is that you and I are, are, are believers and you and I should act like it and people should see Christ in us the hope of glory. 
in our day-to-day walk. Like ministers are to have, uh, are to have a Christ-like attitude towards servants, we should have a Christ-like attitude to all those that we engage with day by day. As we work with them, we ought to reflect the character of Christ. They ought to see in us our, our relationship with the Lord ought to be evident day by day so that we are indeed seeking to be a benefit and a blessing to others, whether they be saved or not. There's a principle here that governs all of this. And as you know, in all of these things, even though the, 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 even though the Lord is specifically signaling out certain the principle that governs it all is the same for all of us. Whatever relationship we're in, whether we're bosses or not. And so masters, first of all, must seek the welfare of their employers, but secondly, masters must not threaten their workers. Put on again. It says forbearing threatening. Forbearing threatening. Now, the apostle minds these believers here at Ephesus, that though the church, uh, though that Christ had become a servant, he was also their master. Because he says in the next part of the verse, he says, knowing that your master also is in heaven. So the whole context of this, this verse is, and the whole context of this, this passage is, that Christ's example, that Christ is our master, and that we are supposed to act as he would act. Whatever it be, whether it be in the home, whether it be as a husband or as a wife, whether it be as a parent or a child, or whether it be in the workplace as a servant or a master, you and I are supposed to reflect the very character of Christ in all of these relationships. And so he gives an example of how that relationship then works. And Paul warns these masters to forbear threatening. The word forbear simply means do not threaten. Your slaves be like Christ, your master. You know, the Lord never threatens you and I. Okay? He, he seeks to uh, encourage you and I, and he loves you and I, and he meets our needs, and uh, when you and I do wrong, he does chasten us, but he doesn't threaten you and I. He doesn't threaten to take away our salvation if we don't do as we're told. Okay? He loves us, and he would rather we obeyed him than disobey him, and he will chasten us when we disobey him, but the chastening that you and I might get all the blessings that God wants to have. God's intention, you and I, is that we be blessed uh, above measure. There is no intent in the heart of God as our master to, to uh, threaten us. So he told, Paul says, listen, don't threaten your servants. That was very important this day because Roman masters had the power and lawful authority to kill a slave. It was rebellious. And they have to have just cause, really. They didn't have to go before the courts. They had the power. It was there in their power to put their servants, their slaves, to death for disobedience. Now, few of them did that, took up that option, because slaves an awful lot of money to purchase. And if you have a slave and you keep putting them to death because they don't obey you, it becomes a very expensive endeavor to keep buying new slaves. So in the empire, very few slaves actually were put to death by their masters, even though that was allowed. And Paul here suggests that the Christian master has a better way to encourage obedience and service than threaten them of punishment. Now, the negative power here could result in a worker doing less instead of more. 
They could be so scared of disobeying the master that they only did what was minimally what they could do or should do in order to make sure they don't let their master. And this kind of motivation could uh, not be continued over a long period of time. Far better was a positive motivation. Somebody said this, let a man share the results of his labor and he'll work better and harder. You know, if you, if you are employed, you know that it's certain bosses are easier to work for bosses. Some bosses, it, it's amazing, they, they seem to be able to, to uh, be a boss and you want to do more for them. You have a desire to want to work, you want to give extra, a little bit extra, even though they may not reward you financially, there's just something about the boss that makes you want to work for them. You enjoy working for them. They're the kind of boss who cares about you, the kind of boss who's interested in your welfare, the kind of boss who, who really uh, does engage with the employer. Then those of us who are a bit older have probably all had bosses with times we thought, I, wouldn't like, I don't like working for that boss. I'd like to work somewhere else. And you and I, can, we can see the difference between the two. And Paul is saying the relationship between slaves and masters and masters and slaves has changed drastically. Their relationship was with one another had a whole new dimension. Slaves were no longer uh, people who had no rights. And masters were no longer people in absolute control of their slaves. What the Lord did in salvation was he changed the relationship between masters and servants. He didn't change the social structure. There still were masters, there still were servants, but now they were, they were equal in Christ. And masters no longer had absolute authority. They didn't, these were not their property. These servants were not their property. They didn't belong to them. They were serving them as they served Christ as a, 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 a out of desire to live for the Lord, they were doing their best for their master. And the master, because he loved the Lord, was doing his best for the servant, and mutually together they were achieving what needed to be accomplished in the workplace. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. Spiritually, they were equals. Look in Galatians chapter 3, please. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This was the new dynamic. The new relationship, they were one in Christ. So they were servants like brothers and sisters in Christ. They would not treat them as their property, but as individuals who Christ had died for. Treat them as equals spiritually. That they were sinners saved by grace, and the master was a sinner saved by grace, and they recognize that now. It doesn't mean, however, that Christians automatically set their sleep. They still had servants' relationship with their masters. We saw last week. The servants were still to obey. That hadn't changed. You know what it says in verse 5? Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh and fear and trembling and singleness of heart, as unto Christ. The obedience of servants and masters hadn't changed. 
They still were to do what their bosses asked them to do. They were still to be good servants. This was not a, a, a freedom whereby servants now did as they pleased and masters please and, and servants now uh, could do whatever they like and masters were now to give them plenty of money and take care of them even if they didn't for them. But nothing changed to the social structure. Servants were still to obey their masters but masters were to see their servants not as their property but as bought saints as individuals that Christ cared for and Christ loved, as individuals whose master was Christ, recognizing that their master as masters was Christ. And there's a new relationship. Servants had an obligation to masters. They still had a servant's relationship, as I said, with their masters. But that relationship now was much different because it was motivated by Christ's love. As masters were to be and master would have been motivated by the same love. The love that they had for the Lord was now to motivate them to be good masters. And they were to reflect the love of Christ their essence. You know, even in the Old Testament, this same counsel is given. In Leviticus 25 and verse 43, it says, Thou shalt not rule over them with rigor, but shalt fear thy God. Even in the Old Testament, Masters were not to serve their, were not to lord over their servants with rigor. They were not to come over them, as it says here in Ephesians, they were not to threaten them. But they were in the fear of the Lord, they were to serve as masters over their servants. Masters must seek the welfare of their employees. No longer just property. See, it changed the whole society. You know, we live in a society today that benefits from all the century Christians' work and the relationship between people, whereby when we go to work, there's an expectation as an employee what a boss should do. And, of course, we have, we've had over the years unions and stuff that have, uh, have tried to help with those things times, and sometimes they've not helped, they've hindered. But the whole point is Christianity changed relationships. You and I, as we go, if you go to work, you don't go as somebody who is without rights. Now, it's still in parts of the world where Christianity is not the predominant religion. That is still the case. People go to work as slaves. They have no rights. They work in sweat boxes around and they are they're paid minimal wages. They, they are caused to work long hours and they have no rights. Christianity brought a relationship change in the, in the workplace so the masters no longer were the, uh, were the owners of those servants and those slaves uh, to do with them as they pleased. There was now an expectation on the master. He realized his ultimate master was the Lord and therefore he must reflect Christ to every one of his servants. And that was a change that was brought upon the uh, Roman world that was, 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 was earth-shattering and earth-shaking. It changed people's uh, perception. Christianity was, had, has an amazing impact upon all sorts of things. It had an amazing impact upon husband-wife relationship. You know, uh, people want women's relationship, but Christianity really brings liberty to women. Christianity deals with the parent-child relationship. 
so that children feel safe at home and where children feel loved and where children don't feel like they are just, you know, be seen and not heard, sit in the background and, and you do as you're told. But children are relationships. God, in saving you and I, changes relationships, or at least he should have done. And that was the point here. Masters were to seek the welfare of their employees. And this is true in the workplace. It's true in the home. It's true in the church. We're equal in Christ, and we need to seek the welfare of each other. Nobody has the right to lord it over another person. Nobody, is, nobody belongs to us. They're not our property. They're simply a, a, a relationship between us and them exists because of a relationship with the Lord, and we're to treat them with the same kind of love and, and the same kind of, of relationship that the Lord has with you and I. Whether we be parents, whether we be husbands, whether we be wives, whether we be servants or masters, whether we be leaders within the church, whatever it might be, our relationship ought to reflect the character of the Lord. We ought to be Christ-like in every area of life. And while here in this verse he's talking to masters, the overriding thought of the whole of this section is that everybody is to reflect the character of Christ. See, what, what the Lord is doing here is he's, he's, he's working through the whole of the family and through all the workforce, trying to make it understand that if everybody loves the Lord, if everyone's saved, and everybody is living Christ-like, then it has an impact upon society in general. We must have a Christ-like attitude in every area of life. Masters must seek the welfare of their workers. Masters must not threaten their workers. Thirdly, masters must be submitted to the Lord. In verse 9, it says, Knowing that your master also is in heaven. To put it similarly, this is practicing the lordship of Christ. You know, the wife submits to her own husband as unto the Lord. In verse 22 of chapter 5. The husband loves his wife as Christ also loved the church, 5.25. Children obey their parents in the Lord, 6.1. Parents raise children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, 6.4. Servants are obedient as unto Christ, 6.5. And their masters are to treat their servants as their master in heaven would have them do. So the common letter here, this is in the Lord. If we're all in the Lord, we all ought to live like the Lord. And when every person submission to the Lord, there will be no problem submitting to those over them. When, 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 when the wife is submitting to the Lord, living for the Lord, then she has no trouble submitting to her husband. When the husband loves the Lord and submitting to the Lord, he has no trouble loving life. When the children are loving the Lord and submitting to the Lord, they have no trouble obeying. And when parents are loving the Lord and living with the Lord and submitting to the Lord, they have no trouble being the parents they ought to be in bringing their children up in the nurture of the Lord. And when servants are loving the Lord and living for the Lord, they have no trouble serving their masters. When they're loving the Lord and living with the Lord, they have no trouble in being the masters they ought to be to their servants because it's working in our hearts. Every person is submitting to the Lord. Jesus said the way to be the ruler is first to be a servant. Go back to chapter 25, please. Matthew 25. 
Matthew 25, verse 21. <clears throat> Matthew 25, 21. His Lord said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I'll make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. If you're faithful little, then you'll be entrusted with much. Jesus said the way to be a ruler is first to be a servant. The person who has no authority has no right to exercise authority. That explains why, you know, many of the great men of the Bible were, first of all, servants before God made them rulers. Think of Joseph, Moses, Josh, David, Nehemiah, just to name a few. Every one of these were first servants before they became masters. Moses was a servant in the court of Pharaoh and then on the backside of the desert before God made him the leader of Israel. Joseph was a servant who went through prison and part of, uh, through part of his house in prison before he became the leader of Israel. Uh, Joshua was a servant to Moses before he became the leader of Israel. David was a shepherd looking after sheep before he became king. Nehemiah was a cupbearer in the king's palace before he became leader of Israel. Even after a man was a leader, he must still be must still lead by serving. I read an old African proverb today uh, this week, and it said this: "The chief is always servant of all. The chief is servant of all." Or to put it in the words of Matthew twenty twenty seven. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. If we're to be effective for the Lord, then we must, first of all, learn to be servants. And we learn that by submitting to our master. By allowing the lordship of Christ to be a reality in our lives. Because he's the Lord. And you and I are to allow him to be our Lord. Allow him to be the Lord of our lives. And as we submit to him as our Lord and Master, he will have an impact upon the way that we live and the way we interact with us, whether we be servants or whether we be masters, whether we be parents, whether we be uh, husbands or wives or children, whatever it is, if you and I will allow ourselves to first be submitted to our Master, allow his Lordship to govern our lives, it will make a difference. Masters, fathers, parents, husbands, wives, church leaders that we ought to be until we learn first to submit to the Lordship of Christ in our lives. Masters must seek the welfare of their employees. Masters must not threaten their workers. Masters must be submitted to the Lord. And lastly, masters must not play favorites. Verse 9 at the end, neither is there respect of persons with him. God is no respecter of persons. The word respect or respecter means to show favoritism or prejudice. Respecter comes from two ancient Greek words, together to receive and face. It means to judge things on the basis of externals, on face value, on preconceived notions. Oh, prejudice, to show favoritism. Masters are not to show favoritism. You know, God does not show partiality towards you and I. God doesn't have favorites. 
There's nobody here tonight that God loves more than he loves somebody else. Isn't that a wonderful truth? There's nobody here of the pecking order, folks. We're all equally loved by God. There is no partiality. There's no favoritism with God. God does not have favorites. He doesn't say, I like so-and-so. But, you know, that, that child of mine over there, well, it's there. I, I, oh, I don't know. This is my favorite. God doesn't do that. I'm so thankful he doesn't do that. I'm so thankful God doesn't play favorites. I'm so thankful that God treats me equally with everybody else. With all my wants and failures and everything else, God loves me just as much as he loves you. He doesn't show favorites. And therefore it's important that we should be entirely impartial as believers. Whether we be masters or servants, whether we be husbands or wives, whether we be parents or children, we shouldn't have favorites. We shouldn't show partiality. God doesn't play favorites with his children, nor should we. Particularly in the context of masters. If we're saved, then we ought to treat those servants the same. God doesn't show favoritism. And God will judge a master or a servant if he sins, and he will reward a master or a servant if he obeys, but he doesn't show favoritism. There's a big difference. No, you can have four children like we did, and every one of them is different. It feels like some of them, you know, you have to, you spend more time arguing with them and more time, you know, having these long debates with them than you do with other them. But you don't have favorites. You don't think to yourself, you know, well, I hope I don't have to talk to that one today. I just want to talk to this one. You don't think like that if you're going to be a decent, good parent, Okay. The children are different, but you, so you, you get to work out that you've got to treat them differently. And every one of our four kids were different, and, had, and each one of them had different way you had to deal with them. And, you know, some of them would argue with you more than others, and some of them were a lot more placid. Some had longer fuses than others, kind of helped, and some had short fuses, and, you know, and so it goes on. And you have to learn to treat them equally. But you do deal with them based upon their behavior. You know, one child might say, I get more smacks than they get. That's not fair. We'll stop misbehaving, and you'll get less smacks than they get. That's got no favoritism. That's got to do with the reality of behavior. That's the same with you and I and God. Some, some believers seem to get disciplined a whole lot more by the Lord than others. And the problem is not the Lord. He's not showing favoritism. It's simply that you and I are not living the way we ought to, and God's got to keep bringing us back. We're not to confuse dealing with people as individuals with showing favoritism, difference. And God doesn't show favorites, nor should we, and particularly masters should not show favoritism towards servants. Christian employer cannot take privileges with God simply because of his position, nor should a Christian employer play favorites with those in his authority. God's no respect for us, nor should we be. Paul warned Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 21. He said, observe these things without preferring one another, doing nothing by partiality. Imagine for a moment what would happen in these New Testament households if slaves served as Paul instructed them 
and mass-treated their slaves like Christ treated them. What would happen to slavery in the Christian community? You know what happened? Fact is, that the whole system was weakened and finally it disappeared in the Roman Empire. Christianity changed it all. It was, it was, a, it was an earth-aching event. When Christians, when, when believers started, when, sorry, when people started getting saved and mass was saved and servants were saved, it had a catastrophic event upon the Roman Empire, what, so much so that slavery ultimately ended because of Christianity. Imagine how a workplace would be if we followed these principles safe for the workplace. Imagine what it would be like if Christian bosses acted like this and Christian servants acted like this. If Christian employees live godly lives and Christian lawyers live godly lives, imagine what the impact would be upon the church if we all walked according to the love of God. Imagine what would happen in the home if we followed the principles of God's word. Well, in the home and the church and society, we then begin to function as God intends to function. What a difference that would make. The world today may not like Christians particularly. I can tell you this, if Christians leave, this whole world is going to ask, not just because God's word says so, but that's the reality of it. Christianity has a very, uh, 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 has a great impact for good upon a society, which other religions don't have. And we need to remember, therefore, we need to live that way as believers to the glory of God. With verse 9 to the end of the section on walking worthy or walking in harmony. They the Holy Spirit and are joyful and thankful and submissive. Then we can enjoy harmony in our relationships of life as we live and work with others. We'll also find it easier to work and witness with unbelievers if you and I are submitted to Master. If we follow God's leading in these passages, then our lives will be rich. God will get the glory. So seek to walk worthy of our calling for the glory of God in every area of life. As we bring this section to close, and then we finish the book off. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the law and the powers might put on the whole armor of God. So that's where we come to next time in Ephesians. The Christian battle, the fight, the good fight, which has its foundations in everything Paul's been saying to this point. If we're going to battle this fight, then we need to get the other areas sorted out in our lives so we might be effective in the battle for the Lord. Let's walk worthy to his glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you this night for your word. We thank you for the book of Ephesians. We thank you, Father God, for the testimony of your word to us. Help us, Father God, be the parents you want us to be, be the husband and wives you want us to be. Be the children you want us to be. Be the sons and the masters you want us to be. The glory of God. That we might walk worthy of you. That people might see Christ in us the hope of glory. Bless now as we close the hymn we pray in Jesus' name.